0: Welcome to the ACR Bulletin Podcast, the show where we examine the latest trends affecting radiology. I'm your host, Chris Hobson, and today I'm joined by Cecilia C. Brewington, MD, FACR. Dr. Brewington is a member of the ACR Colon Cancer Committee and is also Professor of Radiology and Vice Chair of Operations in the Department of Radiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Brewington, it's a pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Well, thank you for having me on, Chris, to talk about this very important topic that's near and dear to my heart.
0: Absolutely, we're, we're, we're over the moon to have you on this topic. It's so interesting. So let's, let's dive right in. Well, today we'll be talking about uh, screening for colorectal cancer, or CRC, and more specifically about how one kind of CRC screening, CT colonography, uh, or CTC, uh, presents fewer obstacles to screening in underserved communities. Uh, so to start us off, Dr. Brewington, uh, can you please explain how prevalent colon cancer is in the US and who should receive CRC screening?
1: Certainly. So uh, first and foremost, I like to say where my statistics come from. So it's based on the SEER data and also this is what is um, shared and you can find it on any of the American Cancer Society's uh, websites on colorectal cancer. But colorectal cancer remains the third leading cause of cancer in the United States for men and women combined, but it's the second leading cause of cancer deaths for men and women in the United States. And if we look at our 2022 statistics on what's projected, we expect to see over 100,000 new cases of colorectal cancer this year. And then with rectal cancer, over 44,000 additional more cancers. So again, this is a very prevalent disease. Although I do say there is good news and that good news is that since the mid 80s, we've been seeing a decline in the incidence of colorectal cancer. Now, that said, why is that happening? It's happening because of screening. And so when we talk about the underserved community, we really have to do that uh, in conjunction with talking about what is it that makes them more susceptible when we know that we're decreasing the rate overall of colorectal cancer in patients who screen appropriately and who change their lifestyle.
0: That's so interesting. Well, as I understand it, the incidence of CRC is is different among different communities. Uh, And I was wondering if you could please give us, just just to start off the conversation, a baseline understanding of which segments of society often suffer disproportionately from this condition and why you think that is.
1: So that tends to be um, the underrepresented communities that suffer more, meaning they have a higher incidence of colorectal cancer, and most specifically, African-Americans have the highest incidence in the United States of colorectal cancer. Um, That's followed by other underrepresented minorities. Uh, Latinos, uh, Pacific Islanders also have a high rate of colorectal cancer. So again, if we look at what we know, which is that we've been decreasing since about the mid-80s, and that's thought to be due to increase in screening, and also changing our lifestyles, meaning changing our risk factors, um, then we have to then pair that somehow to why is it that we're not seeing this same decrease or impacting the minorities as much. Mm. Um, and so when we talk, let's talk about lifestyle for a second. What can we do to, uh, in our life uh, to change our risk factors or to lower our risk factors for colorectal cancer? They have to do with proper nutrition um exercising, um having um access to screening. And so when we talk about the underrepresented community, what do we know? We know that, and let's let's define this also. So it's not only racial and ethnicity that make an underserved community medically, but underserved communities are also driven by socioeconomic factors, right? And socioeconomic factors include Where do you live? Is there a grocery store? Is there a uh, a fresh fruits and vegetable nearby? Um, Sometimes we find that's not the case in some of our underserved communities. And our underserved communities frequently have some of our minority um, populations, right? Um, So if we want you to eat better and to exercise, you also have to have walking paths and an opportunity to exercise. And if we want you to screen you have to have opportunity to screen you have to have access and we know this has been a topic being discussed around the United States in medical communities. Um, it's been the source unfortunately of political topics, but access is very important to to health care, and we do not have equivalencies across the United States so. In your underserved communities, do we have enough GI physicians to perform colonoscopies? Do we have enough doctors? Um, Underserved communities frequently lack enough access. So when we talk about screening, that's going to impact those underserved communities.
0: Interesting, and and speaking of underserved communities, I wonder if we could just take a step back. I think uh, you know there sometimes there are different definitions for the same term. So uh, for you, when you know oper- operationally, uh, how do you? What is your preferred definition of an underserved community? So my
1: definition, and this is totally my definition, mm-hmm. uh, an underserved community is a community for which, um, given their socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm racial or ethnic difference, their gender difference, or their sexual orientation difference, they do not have the appropriate medical access to medical services that provide for prevention, for diagnosis, or for treatment of medical disease processes. And, you know, again, this, this means that they are not going to have the same opportunities that others have to prevent some of these diseases and to treat them. Because if we go, if we go back uh, to the first part of our discussion, where is the highest incidence of colorectal cancer? We find it in the African-American community. Um, where do they have access to healthcare? Are there limitations? And we know that these exist. So that's an underserved community.
0: Well, thank you for that. That we'll just have to keep that in the back of our mind as we as we go through our discussion here. So uh, as the audience that is Um, so optical colonoscopy, uh, if we can talk about that for a minute or just OC is, is how it's commonly known is the most prevalent CRC screening method that's currently in use in the United States. So although it's used more more than any other CRC screening exam, OC does present some significant challenges it appears uh, for uptake among uh, minority groups especially. Um, Can you please tell us what those challenges are?
1: Certainly, so for optical colonoscopy and which most of us think of, that's the traditional colonoscopy that you go into uh, for an exam for screening. um, You are required to be put to sleep, which means that you have to have a driver so not only are you um, going to be off work if you're still in the working um, class, you are also going to have to have someone else there to take you home. Um, and those barriers alone can be obstacles for uh, a mother who is a single, a, a single parent of any, any type, mother, father, um, who needs to take off work to go get this procedure done for something they don't know they already have. When you, when you pair that against, well, I don't need to miss work, I've got to get to my child's event, um, I've got to you know, do these other things, it becomes uh, a matter of triage, right, for that person. Um, mm-hmm. What's more important to me right now um, if I've got to take care of all these other things? Uh, and so that can be a disadvantage or a barrier to having everyone be able to screen without those issues. Um, if you've got to put food on the table, you're not going to take off from your job. That's not going to uh, doesn't allow you to take off necessarily without taking a sick day. Um, and this is something that you 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 have to do, have the driver take you back home afterwards and you can't return to work. That's it. If you've had anesthesia, then that's it for the day. Hmm. So those are some of the barriers. Um, another barrier might be that you may be a person who is um uh, has a uh, medical reason why you can't be put to sleep or um, or maybe it's something that has a, um, uh, a cultural fear associated with it uh-huh. being put to sleep for this procedure. So those types of barriers are things that might prevent certain groups from seeking colonoscopy as their screening method.
0: Gotcha. Oh, I'm sorry. Keep going.
1: Uh, that's okay. Well, I was just going to compare that to CT colonography. Yes. Uh, Colonography takes away some of those barriers. Uh, We are not going to put you to sleep when you get a CT colonography. You can go in that day, have the test, which, by the way, takes about 20 minutes, and then you can go back to your daily activities. You don't have to have a driver, again, because we're not putting you to sleep. So only one person took off for a short period of time during that day uh, to have this procedure done. So for your underserved communities or your underrepresented minorities, this might be something that they find more appealing. Um, And just today, I kid you not, just today I was talking to um, one of our um, employees here at the university and they were telling me that they do not like to be put to sleep. They they don't feel that they wake up um, back to their their, uh, normal state uh, until a delayed period of time. And, and there's a fear behind that. Mm. And those types of barriers cause people to delay this very important screening. Mm. That does not exist with CT colonography. So I got an opportunity to share that with this person today.
0: That's so interesting. Well, yeah. And, and I guess just to square that circle, that that's, that would disproportionately help underserved community people in those underserved communities who maybe don't have um, they have some access to care issues like you outlined before. So that's so helpful to, to, that you outlined it that way. Now, There's, it sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Oh, I'm sorry. There is
1: You nope. just made me remember one more piece to that uh, access to care. Um, so we all know that we've been living in COVID uh, in the pandemic. And uh, for whatever reason, we have a physician shortage. And I think that's across every specialty. Um, We saw some increase in the number of people who retired uh, since the pandemic started, and the population is not slowing down, right? The population is increasing. So when we talk about access to care, those variances that we see between an underserved community and uh, other communities, um, that's starting to increase because of the lack of, of an appropriate ratio of physician availability. So that includes GI specialists. Mm. Um, our gastroenterologist colleagues have looked at their, their um, uh, geographic dispersion of physicians in underserved communities. Uh, We all know that that number is low for lots of other medical specialties as well, but who's going to do those colonoscopies? Mm. Is it widely available in those underserved communities? Right. So when we're in a physician uh, shortage What is available is a CT scanner to do CT colonography, and that's widely available. Um, And this is something that I think we can impact as radiologists, right? If we improve our ability to perform these exams, CT is widely available, and we can have an impact on access.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like, but, uh, you know, and you're right, I think that there there is that plenitude of the, the technology, but it sounds like the reimbursement has is, is been slow to catch up. So it sounds like despite the recommendations of the USP, uh, sorry, the US Preventative Services Task Force or the USPSTF, which we'll talk about again in a minute, um, it, it, despite their recommendations to make CTC screening widely available to all eligible screening candidates, uh, CMS does not currently reimburse for screening CTC unless patients meet like very specific criteria. So I wonder just to give us a fuller picture of, of, of what's happening on the ground, if you could just give us an idea of what these even just some of these criteria are and how they present a barrier to care.
1: So certainly. So let me clarify just a a subtle point of distinction. Um, The Affordable Care Act um, has allowed for anything that has been recommended by the USPSTF as an appropriate screening tool or exam uh, to be done for any patient that has a private insurance Mm -hmm. with no out-of-pocket expense. So, that means for the age group that is not yet of Medicare age, um, who has insurance with a private insurer such as Edna, United Healthcare, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and so on and so forth, you do have coverage, full coverage to get a CT colonography exam hmm. with no out of pocket expense. Because, just as you said, Chris, the USPSTF. sees CT CT colonography as a great exam and it has the recommendation and the support of the USPSTF for screening. Now, when it comes to Medicare patients, the Medicare, uh, CMS does not have to follow the guidelines of USPSTF. They look at them, but they have no requirement to follow them. And so unfortunately for patients that are 65 and above, and have Medicare as their coverage, it is not covered, CTC is not covered for screening purposes, but it is covered for diagnostic purposes. Uh Getting to your question, what are those criteria that allow CMS patients to be covered? If a CMS aged patient or covered patient has um, the following criteria, which include uh, abnormal anatomy, meaning Uh, anything from um, a congenital abnormality of their GI tract to uh, a very torturous colon, which prevents the colonoscopist, the OC provider from getting all the way through the colon. Mm -hmm. They can have a diagnostic CT colonography exam. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the patient is at increased risk for having the more invasive optical colonoscopy, they can also have a CTC exam and have that be fully covered by Medicare. So, what might be those risk factors? You know, as we age, some of us will be on blood thinners mm-hmm. uh, that increases your risk. Some of us, for one reason or another, might have an aversion to being put to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this in patients, for example, who are uh, who have uh, uh, a lung process, bronchitis, who have. Uh, um, um, may be on the lung transplant list
0: um, oh.
1: or have other uh, pulmonary um, disease processes that limit their ability to be put to sleep so they can have CTC and have that be covered fully as a diagnostic exam. So it's it's somewhat ironic if you think about it, because the older we get, the likelihood that we might have um, other medical disease processes, other comorbidities is going to go up Right. For a lot- that puts you at risk for more invasive procedures. And yet CMS, you know, has decided that they shouldn't have the less invasive procedure until you meet certain criteria. I see. But it is possible. Now,
0: so, the, so I'm sorry, to, I was just gonna quickly put in there. So not only for the elderly, but also for anyone who just prefers this process. It's there is there sound like there are barriers. I'm so, I'm so sorry to interject there. Go ahead.
1: Oh, that's correct. It, we, it's great to provide clarity. So, yes, if you're covered by CMS. But remember, if you are covered by private insurers, so less than 65 and covered by private insurers, then you can undergo CTC and have that be fully covered, because that is what the Affordable Care Act has allowed for. Now, there was a, another very important thing that happened. Uh, earlier this year, there was a new ruling that came out regarding uh, what some people refer to as the surprise billing Mm. that can occur with screening. Um, So let me just give you a little context. Uh, Currently, currently, if you have a screening test, uh, so including CT, colonography, a fit test, or a uh, GWAC test, you know, testing for blood in the stool, Um, or Cologuard, which some of you have heard of, which is a DNA and immunochemical test combined, if you have those screening tests and we find an abnormality, uh, the recommendation is that you go on then to have a colonoscopy. Well, uh, currently, the insurers can bill you for that colonoscopy as a diagnostic procedure. It's not considered to be something without out-of-pocket expense for that patient. But the new ruling, which will go into effect in May of 2022, does not allow for that. The USPSTF came back, reviewed that practice, and decided that if you have an abnormal test for screening that is not a colonoscopy, but then requires you to have a follow-up colonoscopy to look further, that that is a continuum. That is a continuous process. Okay. For screening. And so therefore, they, the patient should not be billed additionally. And so that's a great, great thing that happened because um, that was another barrier to screening with other options. And we need those other options, right? We need CTC to be out there because, again, we are a diverse population in the United States, and we all know we like choices, right? Right. And so when it comes to colorectal cancer screening, we want patients to have options that will suit their lifestyle, their access to care, so that they can get that very important screening exam. So we wanna take away all those barriers and give patients a choice. And CTC is on that menu of choices.
0: Interesting. Well, we've, saw, we've talked so much of, and it does and it does sound like a wonderful alternative, and I really hope that we get more uptake as, as we go along here, especially with the USPSTF guidelines shift. But are there any downsides to, to taking the CTC approach when it comes to CRC screening at all?
1: All right, so thank you for asking that question, Chris. Yeah. I think it's important that we be very transparent. Um, now, with optical colonoscopy and with CT colonography, you still have to take that prep. All right. So for those of you who don't know, again, we do need to cleanse the bowel. So the day before the exam, uh, you're put on a a clear liquid diet and you have to take some sort of bowel cleansing um, agent. You have to drink it and uh, that cleans your colon and allows for us to have a good quality exam. So that does not go away with CT colonography. It's, It's very similar to the prep that you have to take for optical colonography. For uh, OC, for optical colonoscopy. Um, So, both of those exams require the PrEP. Um, Another downside, um, um, I do have to try and think of this, um, uh, complication wise, our complication risks are extremely low. They're less than than 1%. And in fact, I've been doing CT colonography for a couple of decades, I have to say, and I've not ever seen a, a, a bowel perforation. Um, we list it because we are insufflating the colon with CO2 or room air, but um, you know, between myself and my colleagues, um, none of us can recount a time that we've ever had a perforation. Uh, that is a risk of optical colonoscopy, but it is also a low risk. It's less than 3% for that, but less than 1% for CT colonography. Um, other downsides. Um, well, let's talk about CMS. You might, you might say, why is it that CMS has not just categorically approved for all of Medicare age patients? Um, one of the reasons that they cited for us was they were concerned about the radiation dose. No. Um, but radiation dose uh, for CTC is not a huge concern. Uh, the amount of radiation that we use uh, as we do with with everything we do in radiology. We use the lowest amount possible, right? Um, and with CT colonography, that dose is lower than what we use for a barium enema. Uh, for those of you out there who still remember the barium enema, it's still available um, and we use fluoroscopy for it, but it is of a higher dose than what we use for CT colonography. So that also is not a concern. Um, Let's see, other things that they listed, uh, they listed, um, we don't have a randomized uh, clinical trial that proves the efficacy, Uh, but I will tell you again, the USPSTF, uh, that organization, it is their task, their objective, their mission to put together a committee of physicians Um, that are going to look at the statistics, look at the studies, look at the medical evidence out there to show what is valuable to populations. And they decided, critically looking at that data, that the sensitivities for CTC are are very close to optical colonoscopy. It's in the 90th percentile, Um, and it's a great test for screening for colorectal cancer and, more importantly, for polyps the precursor of developing a cancer.
0: Well, that's heartening to know that. So uh, thank you for sharing that with the audience. And, and I'm wondering, you've actually written, just to, just to kind of pivot slightly, you've written in the past about how the, the important role electronic health records can play in identifying potential colorectal screening candidates, and particularly in minority communities. So I was wondering if you could share, share some of that knowledge with, with the audience here about how that maybe is working or could potentially work. Absolutely.
1: Um, You know, COVID uh, did, if we have to find a silver lining in COVID, one of the things that we discovered is that um, there's technology out there to help us with a lot of things. And such is the case with the electronic medical record. Um, If we use the electronic medical record effectively, we could screen patients to determine which patients have higher risk factors for development of colorectal cancer. And just for the record, that would include patients who have a first degree relative that might have had colorectal cancer at an early age, um, because we should all screen 10 years earlier than that first degree relative for colorectal cancer. Um, The electronic medical record can also send out reminders in an automated fashion. And because most of those electronic medical records also have an associated phone app, which we know in this day and age, um, what, down to age probably six, some people have a cell phone. And so with that phone app being a reminder, it can help us keep people on track for doing those very important screenings. Um, The other thing that the electronic medical record can do for us, if used appropriately, is identify those of us who put off those screening exams or no-show frequently for those exams. And how can that be married with another tool that I would recommend highly that we we use or another um, um, uh, best practice, and that is to have a navigator involved Mm -hmm. in your screening process. So the electronic medical record can identify the percentage of patients who are not coming back in, or who no show for their screening events. That list can be provided to a navigator and the navigator can focus on those patients or those screening candidates, the ones who are good about their screenings. There's no need to call them additionally by the navigator so you can get the most effective use out of a navigator that can be more more cost effective if you're trying to convince uh, the health system that you work in how to utilize navigators so. To summarize the electronic medical record for reminders, for identifying patients who need to screen and for identifying those patients who no show. Uh, And then last but not least, uh, most electronic medical records also have an intake uh, questionnaire that can be utilized in an automated fashion to help identify people who are at genetic risk for developing colorectal cancer. Uh, There is uh, a genetic predisposition for colorectal cancer in patients who have Lynch syndrome, um, which without going into too many details, um, it's a genetically um, 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 uh, increased risk because of, of, uh, uh, you know, a a broken genetic uh, genome that increases your risk for colorectal cancer. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with familial polyposis syndrome that also increases your risk for colorectal cancer. And so if you fill out the appropriate questions in your electronic medical record, it can flag for our geneticists those patients that we need to talk to about their increased risk, which means they may need to screen earlier for colorectal cancer
0: and i like how that solution balances the technology with the human side with the personal touch that's really interesting i'm i'm wondering some some people in the audience might think okay you know hiring a crew of of all new navigators to to help with that human side like you just so eloquently put together there that might be expensive or that might be a workflow difference or something or something in between that what it, but what do you what do you say to people that say oh i <clears throat> that'll disrupt things that's too expensive um, you know, maybe by more using targeted approaches. I know you've, you've talked about this in the past, but what would you say to people that feel like that's a big challenge?
1: Well, I'd say um, we can search and, and, and perhaps we can provide, if anyone asks after the podcast, um, evidence based um, uh, research that shows the benefit of navigators to a health system, um, to population health, if you will, um, through use of navigators we prevent cancer, right? If we prevent the cancer, then the downstream cost of a patient who develops a colorectal cancer um, is, uh, is nullified, if you will, if we can decrease that number to a health system, to a population group. group. Uh, so the navigator has been shown in many studies to increase the rate in which people screen, how they screen appropriately, uh, getting the job done, Um, We don't want people to no-show, of course, because resources are wasted that way for a health system, so the navigator can help prevent that. Um, And as I mentioned before, cost-effective use of the navigator by targeting patients who are known to be no-show risk um, is advantageous, and decreasing those downstream costs to a health system. Um, That's one way. There's also uh, incentives that uh, can be beneficial. If you have a navigator and you can get your screening rate for a population that you're responsible for in a health system, uh, for example, uh, an ACO or an accountable uh, health organization, um, they are responsible for a certain percentage of lives, right? a certain volume of lives. If they can hit the numbers of of patients screening, they get incentivized through the government. Uh, they pay for additional, they pay additional incentives um, if they hit the 80th percentile or the 90th percentile, because they're decreasing the incidence of colorectal cancer. So yeah. if you are trying to build a case for navigators, talk about those additional benefits. Overall decrease of the cost of taking care of a population because they don't develop the cancer if you can improve the screening rates. There are federal incentives, and then we're not even going to go into um, uh, today. uh, But I will mention that identifying those early cancers lead to longevity. They lead to decreased costs in the care of that patient because we developed, we discovered it early. Um, Our treatments are better and less costly.
0: Yeah, and what I like about that is you've put that in a lot of terms that I think the C-suite that that language they respond to you you know i mean as much as it is trying to provide the best uh, possible care it's also the bottom line and so i think that's interesting you've kind of spoken to both there so i think that's really good advice well what do you think just turning we've we've talked about the past and the present now the future what do you see as the future of crc screening in general and then as it pertains to underserved communities
1: mm-hmm. so I, you know Um, I'll just be straightforward. I think that our approach to colorectal cancer screening has to be uh, one where we are open to a patient having options, a screening candidate having options, if we're going to impact underserved communities and just impact globally people in the United States. Um, Right now, uh, we know that our statistics show us that probably 30 percent Uh, or just under that are not screening appropriately. When we take all comers, underserved, any population in the United States, we still have a 30% rate of those who should be screening that are not. And to impact that group as a whole, we need to provide options. This is the direction that the American Cancer Society has taken. And I think it's the right one. Um, If we give people the ability to pick something that's going to best suit their lifestyle. We talked about barriers earlier for the, what we like to call the busy bees, Uh, those persons under 65. We're on the move and we're on the move all the time, right? And it's not going to be convenient to schedule a day off from work um, and then have another uh, downtime where we are you know, recovering from anesthesia, that may not be the most convenient thing for us. So we may not choose that one, but will we do the CT colonography where we don't have those barriers? Will we do the stool test where we don't have those barriers? So we need to provide options for the future to make an impact on that percentage of patients that um, we need to affect that are still not screening. And um, I didn't mention this earlier, but when we look at the data, that's who's not, that's where we're not making an impact. People who are 65 and above, the, the screening rate has continued to get better and better and better. But for those under 65, which are the, again, the busy bees, it's not improving. And for those in underserved communities who have those socioeconomic disadvantages, including access to healthcare, those numbers are not improving at those rates. So let's provide options, including CT colonography.
0: I think that's a great call to action and a great note to end on. So thank you, thank you very much, Dr. Burlington, for your, your time today and the very interesting conversation. Now, if people want to continue on uh, this conversation online, uh, where can they find you?
1: Uh, thank you for that, Chris. Um, so I do have a um, an article on the ACR website. Uh, which I think you're going to provide after the call, but also um, go to radiologyinfo.org. That's radiologyinfo.org. And it has a lot of information about CT colonography, and it also has information that you can share with patients. So I think going there to those sites can be helpful. Um, Also there, again, if you Google, you'll find a wealth of information of articles out there, but the ACR has a plethora of of speakers that have talked about this topic. Dr. Judy Yee, who is well known uh, as an expert in this field, has um, an article on that site. Um, We also offer um, training for radiologists out there who are willing to take up the call to action, um, because we'd like to see that. And there's an ACR tool that identifies locations that offer CTC. For the radiologists out there that are hearing the podcast or seeing the podcast, if you want to start offering this test, please reach out. We can find a way to get you trained. Uh, For the sites that are offering it and are not on the tool, there's a way to sign up so that your site is recognized on the tool because that's going to improve the access. And again, this is something that radiologists can do to help uh, decrease healthcare disparities. And so, you know, again, I, I hope that this podcast reaches a lot of people who are interested in this topic.
0: I hope so too. And, and you know, we will include a lot of links in, in the show notes. So, uh, not only the ACR bulletin article that you alluded to, Dr. Brewington, but we'll also include that online locator tool uh, to, to help providers and patients find nearby sites offering CTC, as you just mentioned, uh, and along with other <clears throat> colon cancer screening resources, including radiologyinfo.org. So, thank you for, for uh, giving us. Uh, you know, so much to work with there. And for our listeners, if you have any ideas for future show topics, please let us know on Twitter at the handle at radiology ACR, and please include hashtag ACR Bulletin Podcast in your tweet. We'd love to see any ideas you may have for future show topics. I also invite you to check out all of our past episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and be sure to subscribe to ACR's YouTube channel uh, to stay up to date on all of our latest episodes. And finally, please do hit that like button on this video if you found it valuable. Thank you so much again, Dr. Bruce. And this has really been enlightening, and, and really, we really appreciate your time, and we hope to have you back in the future to update us on on everything going on in the space. So, thank you.
1: Well, oh, thank you, Chris.
0: Absolutely, and thanks to our listeners. This has been the ACR Bulletin Podcast. See you next time.